Okay, so uh, you have some notes there. We're doing part four of uh, wisdom and addictions. And believe it or not, even though addiction is more of a modern term, it is not a modern phenomenon. It's something that has gone on for all of humanity. And uh, Proverbs has a lot to say about it. Uh, Proverbs is a book of wisdom. It teaches us what it means to walk with God. If you want... If you want the sort of bottom line of what it means to walk with God in faith, Proverbs is your book. You will, you will find virtually every topic in life in the book. You will find very concise, very direct, and often very easy to understand uh, guidance on what it means to walk with God through all sorts of situations in life. And one of the ways that um, Solomon helps us uh, not just the type of person we should be, but the type of person we should avoid. And, and this is, you know, these are the kids at school you don't want to hang out with. Yes, but this, this is not, the, these, are, these are ways that if you don't walk in faith and if you're not careful, it's not like you just meet these people. You can become these people. And, and, and the, the sobering reality of Scripture is that we all come into this world fallen and sinful and in need of reconciliation. And so... I mean, if you look at that list, the seeds of what it means to be that type of person reside in every single heart in this room. And it's only by God's grace that we are saved, that we are changed, that we are sanctified, and, uh, and we, we grow closer to Him instead of ending up in one of these areas. Uh, so one of the bad guys in the Proverbs that we meet uh, early on is the addict, uh, along with uh, the fool, the adulterous woman, and some other uh, uh, characters there. And uh, we saw uh, our three key texts. We've been kind of uh, building a foundation upon Proverbs 23, Proverbs 20, verse 1, and Proverbs 31, 4, and 5, that all warn about the danger of alcohol and drunkenness. And, and not just drunkenness. I mean, you know, sometimes I think in, in our Christian circles we say, well, the only thing you really understand about alcohol is don't get drunk. And that's, that's certainly true that, that, that is, uh, the Bible is very clear that, that drunkenness is sin. But the Bible goes way beyond that. I mean, there, there's a, a message that's much broader. And so that causes us to think more carefully uh, about the topic. Um, we, if you're just joining us today, we have a lot of catching up to do. So I hope most of this makes, con- makes sense. But uh, we've been talking about um, how the Bible thinks about addiction. How does the Bible come at addiction? If you open the Bible, you're not going to see, uh, if you look in the concordance, you're not going to find the word addiction. Uh, you're not going to, um, actually, I, I take that back. The, the word addiction is, it does occur a couple of times in the Bible, that word itself. It doesn't have the clinical significance of what we think of today as addiction. But what the Bible does do is it explains why people can get stuck in a behavior that is destructive and yet they have trouble brand, uh, uh you know, breaking out of that. So addiction, according to Bible, just by, by way of review, if you're trying to help somebody, we have to think about worship through the lens, addiction through the lens of worship. Um, all problems in life are really worship problems. They're worship disorders. And uh, when somebody is addicted, let's say, to alcohol, what they're doing is they have replaced alcohol and the experience that alcohol provides for them, whatever it is, whether it's an escape, whether it's uh, relaxing, whether it's having a good time, you know, whatever it is, that, that that experience has replaced God in their life. And they, they are wrapping their life, they're building their life around that experience instead of worshiping God alone. We've talked about desires that we are driven by, those sort of wants or desires that govern our life. Uh, you'll remember Bobby Bass and Lake Granberry. Uh, uh, we are led away and enticed by our own desires, James says in James chapter 1. And deception that goes with that. Uh, behind every sin is deception. And one of the ways that we fight sin in our life is by exposing the lies that sin tells us. Now, you can still believe them even though you know they're lies. But nonetheless, uh, so much of sin happens because we just keep deceiving ourselves. I mean, and just as a very simple example, if, um, if, if I walk around as a dad believing that I deserve children that obey me the first time, uh, well, that's going to contribute to how I parent. Because every time they don't do that, I'm going to get angry. And I'm going to get uh, ugly. And I'm going to be unhelpful to them. And so that sort of 
entitlement mentality that is a lie is what's driving my sinful behavior in that case in parenting. So, so that, that's a good little just takeaway for today. Uncover the lies behind your sin. And that's why the Bible always is telling us things like this. Renew your mind in the scripture. Take every thought captive. Think on things that are true. You know, you see those, the- those themes, and that's not just the Bible saying, hey, we should, you know, thinking is important. It's saying that's the fundamental issue, is, is what we're buying into in terms of truth. Uh, pleasure, obviously, we, we wouldn't sin if there was no- not something pleasurable about it, and in all addiction, there is something pleasurable. There's often a substance, either a foreign substance like alcohol that we're introducing to our body, or in the case of, you know, playing too many video games or a gambling addiction problem, the chemicals are released by your own body, but in inordinate amounts. So, um, and this isn't a class on neurophysiology or anything like that, and I'm not that kind of doctor. But nonetheless, we understand that that's part of the experience of addiction, and that's why sometimes it's hard to change. Uh, the importance of habit, that we are creatures of habit. God made us like that, and uh, we need to you know, harness the capacity of habit in sanctification for godliness and not for sin. That's Romans chapter 6. And finally, there is a body component. Uh, what is the substance doing to your body? Uh, we know what alcohol does to the body. We know what street drugs do to your body. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm an 80s boy, so you know, I grew up with the old uh, um, food and drug commercial. You know, this is drugs, and they got the, pl- the, the frying pan. Then they drop the egg in. This is your brain on drugs, right? You know, any questions? And it was awesome. Because even before, you know, they called the 80s the decade of the brain because they were just kind of uncovering how the brain works. And then they got to the 90s and said, well, we didn't learn as much as we thought we would in the 80s. So, so it kind of extended into the 90s. And here we are, 2018, and they're still trying to figure out the brain because it's just this marvelous invention of God that only his mind alone fully understands. But it's stuck, right? We know that, that drugs harm your brain and other parts of your body. And, uh, and it's not just drugs. It, it can be other addictive behavior that uh, have a negative impact on your neural pathways. So, Now, where we're at last time, this is kind of where we started, we left off last time, is how do we understand addiction in believers? So what we want to do is finish this today, and then I want to give you some, uh, some direct help. If you, if you would say this morning, you know what, I'm addicted. If you were to say that in your heart today, just you know, between you and the Lord, honest, I'm struggling with something. There's some behavior. There's something I'm doing in my life. Maybe it's overtly sinful. Maybe it's illegal. Or maybe it's just, you know, I know that this behavior in my life, though it's not directly sinful, is really becoming more important than it ought to be in my life. If that's you, uh, I want to talk about some very specific guidance there. Or if you're trying to minister to somebody, you, you've got a, a family member that's, that's struggling with drunkenness or drugs, or uh, maybe they do have a gambling problem and you're trying to minister to them, what sort of counsel could you give them as a Christian brother or sister to them in that? And, and Owens, Owens sets this up in terms of understanding uh, what happens to us at conversion. We saw, by way of review that we have to understand addiction in Christians differently than unbelievers because of all these truths. This is what happens to you. When you trust in Jesus for salvation, you get a new heart, you receive the Holy Spirit who comes to reside inside of you. You're made alive spiritually, whereas before you were dead. Your old self is crucified. That That's, that's everything about you and your identity as a sinner before Christ. That that is crucified. It dies with Jesus when you trust him. You have a new identity It's interesting. Um, One of the biggest things you see in working with somebody struggling with addictions is the problem of identity. And uh, maybe some of you have been to an AA meeting or a 12-step meeting, and and you know how it goes. Hi, my name's Keith, and I'm an alcoholic. And that's part of what the disease model of addiction has done, is it's turned a problem into identity. And, of course, if you don't believe in a spiritual party of the person, if you believe that all you are is your body, well, that is your identity, right? It is a, it is a disease if, if all you believe is that there's a body but there's no spirit or soul. And uh, so you know what addicts need to hear? Addicts need to hear that in the gospel they can have a new identity, that they no longer have to be identified by their addiction. And uh, that, just, that just changes everything. 
And, and Jesus backs it up. It's not like you walk around with the high I belong to Jesus name tag alone. He backs it up by changing you on the inside. So that now you have fundamental capacity now to change and grow. And maybe most importantly, thinking about addiction, since addiction is presented to us in the Bible as slavery, a slavery to something, uh, that Romans 6, 6 says in Christ we're no longer a slave. So there's redemption that happens there. So how do we understand it? This is where we left off. Remember the dead elephant on your back? Remember Jim Lovell, Apollo 13, the moon rocket that went bad uh, back in 1971, Alan? When was that? Um, and uh, so, yeah, and, and uh, it's a great analogy that the Bible tells us that we, we as Christians retain some indwelling sin. And, and that, that part of us, think of it as a component of who you are spiritually. Alive, redeemed, Holy Spirit residing, new identity, new capacities for righteousness, new heart, everything's new, but you still have this thing called the flesh, which the way I think about it is, it's, it's the, the dead elephant on your back. It, it's the old man who died, but his carcass is still strapped to your back, and if we're not careful, that, that old man influence still directs a lot of our course if we're not careful. And if you're a new Christian, uh, this can be very frustrating because sometimes when you become a Christian and depending on who you've been talking to or what you've been reading, you think, man, I become a Christian and all my problems go away, right? And, and life is, you know, butterflies and sweet tea or something, you know, and it's just, you know, it's easy and it's great. And, and the reality is the Bible says that um, when you become a Christian, things actually get harder, they get harder because now you have a battle in your soul going on between the Holy Spirit and your new life and what you want to do in terms of honoring God and that old dead man called the flesh that still wants to steer you off the road of righteousness into the ditch of sin. And uh, so, so I'm here to tell you, if you're a new Christian, feeling that battle to walk with God every day, fighting sin in your life every day. Uh, the Christian life is not a vacation. It's described in the New Testament as like going to war, uh, running a race, going into the ring for a boxing match. I mean, this, this is not passive, right? This is not, I'm taking a cruise. It's, it's, I'm going to the front lines of the terrorist battle lines in Afghanistan with special forces. That's what it means to be a Christian. So let's not be surprised when you wake up in the morning like I do and it's like, man, why do I want to keep doing this? And even more than that, not just being, you know, sobered by that, but let's prepare for battle. Let's sober up. Let, let's, let's ready up. Let's train. Let, let's, let's gird up our loins would be the, the scripture term, right? And you think we don't gird up our loins anymore because we don't wear... You know, gird up your loins, right? You got the you got the traditional looks like a just like a towel that you're wearing, right? And girding up your loins, of course, meant that you took the ends of that what looked like a dress, and you brought it up and you tucked it into your belt so you could run or you could go work or go do something active. And and that's what the Bible says. We need to gird up our loins for battle. You know, prepare, get ready, be sober in spirit, right? The the scripture tells us. So Owen, uh, our uh, Puritan friend here who's helping us to understand a believer's battle with indwelling sin, says the choicest believers who are assuredly freed from the condemning power of sin ought, I love this, ought yet to make it their business all their days to mortify the indwelling power of sin. You point both barrels of your spiritual resources at your flesh every day and you fire and you battle. Um, because, Owen reminds us, sin doth not only still abide in us, but is still acting, still laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. I bet, show of hands, how many of you have done battle with your old self this morning already? Right? You know, it's like you wake up a little groggy. He doesn't. He's ready to go. Uh, and it may be something as simple as, you know, it's a nice, cool, rainy morning and that bed felt so nice this morning and it's worship, it's the Lord's day and there's that little part of you that says, oh, it'll be so nice 
just to stay here and listen to the rain, cling, 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 you know, outside, wouldn't it, you know, boom, right, that's what you, that's what you do, and you say, no flesh, I'm going to worship my Savior today, because it's his day, and I want to be with his people and hear his word, right, and that's what you got to do, you take yourself in hand, and you handle that, so you mortify that old self, now, the second, uh, this is uh, jumping into your notes now, the second way that the Bible describes addiction for a believer now, okay, not, not, an un, not a non-believer, but a believer, it's the flesh. It's the remaining presence, power, and desire to sin that remains on in the life of the believer, that, that component of who we are that remains fallen. But there's a second way, and that is allowing sin to reign. Allowing, okay, what do we mean by that? Turn with me to Romans chapter 6, and let me uh, try to explain this. Um, there's a second reason why believers can get stuck in a sinful activity like addiction. One is we just have the flesh, right? And we're just going to we're going to battle the dead elephant on our back until Jesus comes. But there's another reason. Romans chapter 6 and you know this cuz Pastor Terry just taught through this not too long ago. Romans 6 is that passage that says if if you have trusted Christ, you're no longer a slave to sin. You have been united with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection. You were raised to walk in newness of life. You're a new person, right? Everything's great because you're united to Jesus now. And then there's a hinge. Then there's a, a therefore. So let me show you that, okay? So that's what happens in Christ. And then we have verse 12. Therefore, in light of the fact that your old self is dead, you're no longer a slave, you're united to Jesus, you've been redeemed by him, therefore... Sit on the couch. You're good. Is that what it says? No. Uh, Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts or obey its desires. Now, just stop right there. What does that tell you about Christian growth and maturity? There's a part that we play. It takes work. Even simpler than that. It's not automatic. Right? There is a part we play. There, there is something we have to do. It is work. Um, have you noticed that? When you take your hands off the wheel of your Christian life, the direction of your car goes toward ungodliness, not toward godliness. Have you noticed that? And Paul is here saying, yes, you're with Christ. Yes, your old self has died. That's awesome. Don't you dare take your hands off the wheel. In fact... It is. It's work. It's active. You have to live now in light of your new position. Don't let sin reign. What does that mean? What does reigning mean? Not reigning like water hitting the roof. Reigning, R-E-I-G-N-I-N-G, right? To rule. To rule. That's right. So, so let's put it together with that. Do not let sin rule over you. Now, sin's defeated, your old man is dead, you're no longer a slave, but there's this crazy thing that the flesh does. He doesn't want you to know that. He wants to keep acting like you're still a slave. And if we're not careful, we can live like we're still slaves too. And you know how, you know how that goes, oh, I'm never going to change, I've been fighting this for, you know, oh, it'll be okay just this time. Oh, I've failed so many times. Oh, it's so hard. And brothers and sisters, those are lies. Those are lies. That, that is the flesh encouraging us to believe that Jesus did nothing in your life when you came to him. Do not let sin rule over you. You can say no. You can defy your fallenness in that way. And that's what Paul says. Yes, sir. One of the things that, that's helped me in so many years in church, you would hear people, preachers, and even songs, I think there's a song that says, lay it down, mm-hmm. leave it. And then I ran across this scripture in Second Corinthians, and it says, for the weapons are, this is the key mm-hmm. thing, mm-hmm. for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, for the pulling down of strongholds, casting Strong's concordance of casting down doesn't mean that we're laying it down or even throwing it. It means 
utterly destroy You're destroying it. it. We have to utterly destroy it, says imaginations, and every high thing that exalts it itself against the knowledge yeah. of God. Yeah, yeah. We, we have to utterly destroy it. You can't put right. something down, you're going to pick it back up. That's right. Yeah, and we might we might summarize that. I appreciate that text, um, and all those terms are from the text he read in Second Corinthians uh, twelve or ten. Um, is um, they're all military terms. That that's the that's the preeminent text on what we think of as spiritual warfare, and it is. It's the Christian life is violent as we're tearing down these old behaviors, these old worldviews, these old lies that we tell ourselves. Um, it is. It, it's, it's a violent act, and that's why you know the Puritans like that old word "mortify." You're going to go, you know, kill it and then kick it when it's down some more. Um, but don't let sin reign. Uh, don't do that. Don't don't be a slave. And, and notice how, how do you not let sin reign? Look what it says. It says, "Do not let sin reign in your body, so that you obey its lusts, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but instead." Presents yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of unrighteousness to God. So let me, can I just make that really practical? When you're struggling with a sin, you're struggling, you, maybe you wake up in the morning, it's good to be proactive and not just in the moment too. What do you do? You remind yourself, I have died to that. I've died to that lifestyle. I've died to that kind of thinking. I've died to that kind of behavior. My life belongs to Jesus and he has redeemed my body, he has redeemed my life, and my life is to be used for righteousness today. That's what presenting means. That word present means you are saying, Lord, here I am today to be yours, to walk with you, to be used by you. And, uh, and then practically, how does that work? When you have sinful desires, defy them. Tell them you don't have to obey. Tell them they're wrong. Um, you have the ability to say no to your sinful desires. Now, here's the thing. You will not feel any different sometimes. You become a Christian, you have that struggle, and it feels like it's always felt sometimes. It feels overwhelming. It feels impossible. It feels... There's part, of the, there's part of you that is still attracted to that sinful behavior. And in that moment, here's the thing, you defy your flesh by acting on faith, not your feelings. That's the key. You defy your flesh by acting on faith, meaning you trust and buy into and act on what you know to be true, what God says here, and do not act based on how you feel. You act based on how you feel, you'll blow it every time. Because your feelings are liars, aren't they? Okay, so that's the second explanation of addiction. When, when believers allow sin to reign and behavior to become one's master. Number three, when we continue to live to please self and not God. Um, just turn the page to the right over to, to 2 Corinthians. Speaking of 2 Corinthians, stop with me at chapter 5. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Why did he die on the cross? We could say, well, he died on the cross to forgive us of our sin. He died to make atonement for God. He died to reconcile us to God. He died to redeem us from every lawless deed. Those are all good theological answers. But this text tells us that Jesus died to free us from the bondage of living for ourself. Now, living for self sounds fun, doesn't it? In fact, if we're all honest, we really like that sometimes, right? It's like, it's like six flags all the time, isn't it? You just do whatever you want. You know how it is, right? If, you, if we let you do six flags all day instead of going to school, you'd do it, wouldn't you? Because it's more fun in school, right? And and we old people would do the same thing. We would choose fun things. We would choose things that are uh, gratifying to ourselves. And then you know what happens? It's fun for a little while, and then you start to have problems. And you go, well, that was fun, but it caused this really bad problem in my life. You know, you can binge dessert... And then you start having health issues and you go, well, that's not good, right? 
you can um, uh, you can go um, do some horrible sinful behavior. You can go commit adultery. You can go steal something. You can go you know lie your way to success in the corporate world. And your sin will find you out, the Bible says. And there are these consequences. You go, well, that was fun for a little while. Now it's horrible. And then you experience some suffering and some brokenness and some challenge. And God will humble you to the place where you see that you are nothing before him. And you've built your life on me, myself, and I. And it's been fun for a little while. And now it's pain. Now it's consequences. Now it's difficulty, and you have no resources. And I'm here to tell you, Jesus came to rescue us from the bondage that is living for ourselves. It's fun for a little while, but it is destruction in the end. It is pain and misery in the end. So listen to this. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves. There it is. But for him who died and rose again on their behalf, Jesus died to rescue you from the bondage of the road and destruction that leads, uh, that is living for self. He rescues us off of that road and he transfers us to to a new road that says, live for God, live for his son. That's the gospel. Now, I don't know about you, but even though that's what's happened to me in Christ, this is what I do. I look at that road for living for self and I go, you know, maybe it's not so bad. I'm going to walk on that road a little bit because it's fun. It's great. And then I go, what am I doing? Okay, I repent. Okay, back back on the road to Christ, you know, and things are going. Oh, yeah, that, that would. Right? And. Do you do that too? And and it's like there's this, I'm on the road, I want to live for Christ. If you asked me, I would say yes, 110%, I want to live for Christ. But I keep turning and looking backward at that old road and saying there's some fun things on that road, there's some attractive things, maybe I'll just go on a little bit. for. And that explains, in part, why we continue to struggle with sin. Because we have moments... Or sometimes even seasons where we go back to living for self. And you know, this is not like some big horrible, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go kill somebody. And it can't be like that. It might be in, in a, in a garden variety moment of home life, I act selfishly toward my wife instead of living for Christ. In a moment, I want her to serve me instead of living for Christ, which means I want to serve her. And it can be that simple. But applied to what we're talking about, living for self uh, can explain why addiction will continue. And you guys know this, all addiction, like all sin, is inherently self-focused. That's why an addict can look at his wife, his kids, his family, his friends, his co-workers, people that have bent over backwards to help him. And he will choose his addiction over all the pain and hurt that he caused those people. It's insanity. But you know what? That's what living for self is. It's insanity. And it may look like that, or it may be something as simple as you tell your kid off because your TV show is on on Netflix, and you chose entertainment over shepherding your child. It may be that simple. But we need to get off that road that leads... Uh, of selfishness and number four another x we're trying to understand what is addiction in a believer okay it's it's the flesh that's one explanation it's allowing sin to reign that's another explanation it's living to please self instead of god that's another explanation here's another one number four continuation of living in established sinful habits believers continue to live in what feels like slavery not so much because they have not acknowledged their redemption but because they are not daily mortifying old habits and replacing them with new godly ones this is so important that you see this first timothy 4 7 who, who knows um, the second half of that verse first timothy 4 7 says I'll, I'll quote it to you discipline yourself for the purpose of college football no uh, discipline yourself for godliness Discipline yourself, gymnazo, training, going to the spiritual weight room, 
sweating work, toil, agonizing training. It's an athletic term. And the Bible says, discipline yourself so that it promotes godliness in your life. And you know what that means? Let's say, um, let's say that you've come to the conclusion that you are on your phone too much. And uh, you're Facebooking, you're Instagramming, or whatever you do online. And you're like, you know what? Um, I realize that if I am a slave to an Apple product. Okay, so there you are. Admission is the first step, we say. What do you do? You say, well, I know I'm new in Christ. I know I need to live for Him. I need to not live for my phone. And we put all this. But, but the reality is... If you don't change your habits regarding this device, you will likely not change. So let me give you some examples. Um, Where is your phone when you're sleeping? I mean, you're sitting in bed at night. You should be sleeping and you're, one more time. One more time. Oh, oh, wow. Is that what you do? Don't do that. Put your phone across the room so you're not tempted to look at it when you're laying in bed and it goes ding, oh, that's another thing. Turn those dings off. Turn off the notifications. I mean, do you want your life to revolve around a ding? Right? Turn them off. Move your phone. Turn. Here's a radical thing. Turn your phone off. Do, do you know, if you ever want to get a hold of Pastor Terry, after 9 p.m., call his house because his phone will be off, right? Is that still true, Regine? He still turns his phone off? Okay. And um, I look up to him for that because that's his way of saying, you know what, technology is not going to be an option after 9 p.m. But if you need your pastor, just call his, his home. He's, he's happy to talk to you. Just don't call the cell phone or you get the voicemail. Um, but that's a, that's a great example of putting a change. You're, you're changing your habits. You're changing your routine. You know, is your routine, you get up in the morning, first thing you do is you pull up your phone and you look at your social media before you've looked at your spouse, before you've looked at your kids, before you've spent time with God. I mean, is that how you want to live? And I'm not, I'm not trying to be condemning. I'm just saying if you're going to change that part of your life, you've got to change your routine. You've got to change your habit. John Owen would say, mortify then thy iPhone. No, he didn't say that. But that's what he would say if he lived today. Okay, so you're disciplining yourself for the purpose of godliness. Um, One of my professors, Dr. Stewart Scott, used to say, you want to restructure your life so that it promotes godliness and not sin. And he drew a picture. I won't take the time to do that. But but, okay, what are the ways, what are the things you do that make using your phone too much easy, right? It's by my bedside. It's on all the time. The dings are going. Okay, you want to know radical? You, You want to really get this under control? Delete your Facebook app. (gasps) I can't do that. Millions of Christians before you lived without it. I hate to tell you. Um, If you want to get this under control, Owen did say, let not man think that he make any progress who does not walk over the neck of his lusts. That's what you have to do. Sometimes you have to take the neck of your lusts and cut it and kill it. Maybe forever, maybe for a season till you get under control. But do that. Don't let a free app lead and dominate and be your master in life. If, if that's what you're struggling with. And I call, I mean, I'm just picking one thing. Don't, don't do that. Defy it. Say, I don't need this. Say, my kids and my spouse and real relationship. Hey, shocking. I can sit here and talk face to face with Nick and not going ding, 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 ding. And right, and it's disrupting my, my person to person fellowship with my brother. You can say no to your lusts because Jesus died and now we're walking with him. Now we're free to walk in newness of life. We can change our habits. Is this too personal? I know I'm getting in your kitchen a little bit here, so don't mean to. Okay, so here we go. 
Uh, Listen to uh, Jay Adams in a wonderful little booklet, Godliness Through Discipline. As a sinful human being bent towards sin, you have practiced sinful practices, watch this, so that they have become a part of you just as they have become a part of all of us. There is no question that the habit capacity is there. Did you get in your car, put on your seatbelt today? I hope you did. Did you think about it? Probably not. How'd you do that? God gave you that capacity. And you're using that capacity for righteousness. But you know what? We have all sorts of habits, which is a good capacity that we use for sin. What does Adam say about that? The capacity of habit works both ways. It operates either directions. You can't avoid habitual living because this is the way God made you. And his point is, take those bad habits and by God's grace, change them into good habits. Replacing deception with the truth. We've talked about that. Believing lies. Learning self-control over one's body and desires. You know, you know at, at, the, the, the Bible tells us that one of the things the Holy Spirit produces in all of our life is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you're a Christian possessing the Holy Spirit, you can't ever say, I don't have enough self-control to do this. Because you have Holy Spirit-given self-control. You say, well, why does it feel like it? Because we're acting on our feelings. I don't feel like I have enough self-control. Well, that's going to send you down the wrong road. It's not whether you feel like you have self-control. Remember, the power is in the doing in the Christian life. Say that with me. The power is in the doing. As an act of faith, you say, I'm going to take a step of obedience this direction. I'm going to turn off my phone. I'm going to turn off my computer. I'm going to turn off the TV. I'm going to go spend some time with my kids. I may not feel like it, but I know it's right. So God, help me to honor you. And I take a step of obedient faith. And then something amazing happens. I'm there. And I go, how did I get from there to here? Well, there's power in the doing. There's self-control that the Spirit gives you. You know, there's not like a a self-control tank. And you look at your app and go, yeah, I'm doing pretty good on self-control today. I feel pretty good. I feel like I'm pretty in control today. That's not how it works. The way the Holy Spirit works in terms of your self-control is in a moment of temptation when you believe the gospel and you act on that instead of the sinful impulses that you feel. And when you act, the power is in the acting. That's how it works. So learning self-control. And then impulse and eye control. Um, something as simple as, you know, if you struggle with, with sexual lust, Job has, Job has a great uh, example. Job chapter 31, it's actually verse 1. Job says, I made a covenant with my eyes. I'm not going to look on a girl that's not my wife. That's what he says. I'm not going to look. He and his eyes have a deal. And he says, uh, anytime... Somebody who is sexually attractive, who's not my wife, comes into my field of vision. Me and my eyes have a deal. I'm not looking. You know? And I don't know what you do, but sometimes walking through Walmart with my boys, it's like, oh, hey, look at, did they polish the tiles last night? Look down there, boys. Let's just look down. We're just looking down. Uh, Nice tiles. Okay, good. Okay. Right? That's what you do. And then in verse 7 of that same chapter, in Job chapter 31, uh, he says, the real problem is when my heart follows my eyes. That's the problem. Uh, was it Luther that said, uh, you know, you, you can't, uh, what, what does he say about, um, you know, you can't keep a, a bird from landing in your hair, but you can't keep him from building a nest, right? You, you can't avoid every immodest person in the world otherwise you'd have to leave the world paul says in first corinthians 6 but you can avoid letting your heart in terms of its desire follow what your eyes see it's eye control it's heart control such i mean we could spend weeks just thinking about how that works and all that but but you get the point okay so that is how we understand addiction in a believer it's the flesh it's allowing sin to reign it is living for self and it is uh, understanding habit and how habit works. Okay, now, all that leads to this section. And uh, we'll just we'll, we'll uh, get a few slides into this, and then we'll finish it next week. Let's say that this is your situation. Help, I'm addicted. Or help, 
I have an addicted friend that you're trying to help. What do you do? So let's take everything that we've learned and let's try to help ourselves in terms of our own sanctification and let's think about how we might help another person who's struggling. The first thing we talked about is the fact that if you're talking to somebody about an alcohol problem, there's a very real sense in which alcohol is not the problem. What is, what is the real problem in all addiction? Yeah, it's a heart issue. It's a problem with the spiritual part of you, the heart, the, the worshiping part of you, the, the desiring part of you. So what that means is when you're helping somebody with an addiction or maybe you're struggling, you have to deal with two levels. The first level is the obvious one. We, we call it, actually, this is uh, Paul Tripp's terminology here, symptom addiction. There's some slavery to some physical substance like drugs or alcohol or maybe some other foreign substance you're introducing into the body. Or there is a slavery to some pleasurable activity that brings a physiological reward like pornography, like video games, like gambling. Uh, the, the substance that makes your body feel good is within the body. It's not being introduced into the body. Okay, you got to deal with that. So if it's alcohol, uh, you need to make a plan to get rid of it. If it's pornography, you need to make a plan to get rid of your access. If it's gambling, you need to think about how to uh, not have the ability to do that. Um, and, and you know, it used to be, it used to be if you had a gambling issue, you had to go to some casino somewhere, right? You had to go north of the Red River and go to the whatever the place is over the Red River there. Um, nowadays... This is all you need. Remember years ago, um, a family that was struggling, and um, guy was guy was into online gambling, and he would lock himself in the bedroom for hours, wasting his family's money. Kids are running around, neglected. Um, okay, so, so it, it, it's right. Is this a device for godliness or sin? It depends, right? So you've got to deal with the symptom addiction. You've got to deal with the slavery, the reigning of the physical substance or the pleasurable activity. But don't think that that's all of it. Because what you really have to do is you have to get to the heart. What's actually driving that addiction? We call it causal addiction. It's the God replacement ruling the heart. So you remember how this works, right? You have an inner man. You have an outer man. This is what you do. This is behavior. And your behavior is coming out of your heart. This is the spiritual part of you. And this is where you think. This is where you want. This is where you worship. Um, all those spiritual activities are going on down here. So... If drinking or gambling or looking at pornography is the behavior problem, we need to restrict that. We need to do something to make it harder for that person to access those things. But how we really minister to them is we want to get down here and say, what are they thinking? What are they wanting? What are they worshiping? What God replacement is driving their behavior? Because it's not Jesus that's driving the gambling, right? It's not Jesus that's driving the drinking. It's something else. It could be simple as something as simple as I just want to relax for a little bit. And so, so let, let's do some God replacements here. God replacement could be, it could be I want peace. It could be I want pleasure. It could be I want comfort. It could be I want to feel loved. It could be I want rest. It could be I want a good time. You know, it, it, you know, our idols are not real sophisticated. I mean, they're really not. It's just like, I just want to rest. I just want someone to love me. I just want to... And, and, and you know, I'm, I'm not, not mocking that in the sense that, that, that those are not real struggle, struggles. I'm just pointing out, you don't have to be a rocket surgeon to figure this out. Yes, that's David Gibson's term. Um, Two of you got it, and then one laughed, and then everybody else caught on. So good. All right. I'm glad some of you are awake still. Uh, you got to figure out what that is. 
And again, you don't have to be in the heroin to see that these are things that many of us struggle with every day, right? So we have to deal with that causal addiction, to use Paul Tripp's term. What are the desires of the heart? What are the lies being embraced? What habits have formed? Um, There's this wonderful Hebrew word. Let me introduce it to you. Um, Back in the day before they had roads, so we're thinking about the the B.C. era, you might use wagons pulled by oxen. Remember when they put the the Ark of the Covenant and they put it on an oxen cart? Remember that in in the, the story? And so the, the, the main roads between city to city would be dirt and the, the wagons would go back and forth. And you know what those wagons did, especially to saturated dirt like we got today, this morning with all the rain? They would build these ruts. So you get these little trenches where the carts would go back and forth and back and forth. And uh, they, the, the Hebrews actually had a word for those trenches in the road, those, those divots, those... Um, Wagon tracks that were deep into the and, and ingrained in you. And if you tried to if you try to take your wagon across those tracks, it was difficult, and you would mostly slide back into the ruts, right? And you know what I'm talking about. The Hebrews had a word for that. They called it derrick. Derrick, the Hebrew word derrick. That's what it means. Tracks that the oxen leave and the carts, you know, ruts in the road. Except they didn't use it just to talk about roads. They used it to talk about people. How can a young man keep his way pure? That's Derek. It's the word way in the Old Testament. And it means a person's lifestyle, their habits, their patterns. Why is that? Because we all have, we all have well-worn paths in our life. And we, you know, you know this, we don't even do it. I mean, do you think about making coffee in the morning or do you just do it? It's just your habit, right? If you're a coffee drinker. And that's what the Bible is saying is you have a lifestyle. You have a way because you've done it over and over and over and over again. And what we're saying is you have to identify what are my habits? What are my ways? What are the patterns of my life that I've done so many times I can do it in my sleep? And, and, and here's how it works. It may be for coffee, and that, that's a whole other topic for another day, but maybe it's, may, hear me, maybe it's what you do when you want to relax. I mean, just think for a minute. What do you do when you want to relax? I bet you've got a habit. I bet you've got something that you do when you need to relax. You've got a hard day, been working in the yard, working in the office, working on the boat. You know, whatever you're doing. And I'm, I'm not here to say that way is wrong. Or I'm not trying to critique. I'm just saying you have a way, don't you? You have something that you like to do when you need to just chill for a bit. And think about what you do. Think about where you go. And the problem with addiction is you develop a pattern to go to the wrong thing when you need to relax or when you need to rest or when you need comfort or when you need uh, pleasure or what have you. Identify that and then defy your pattern. Change your pattern. Make a new rut. Make a rut that leads to godly things. Make a a rut that leads to Christ and his gospel and then to righteous habits or activities that he would say are going to help you rather than hinder you. Um, uh, Can I give you a silly example just just before we quit here? Um, a lot of people struggle with what we call retail therapy. Um, retail therapy means when you're feeling lousy, tired, whatever, you open the Amazon app and you shop. And there's something really fun about shopping and buying and getting new things. And all of a sudden you feel better, don't you? Right? You're not thinking about the week. You're thinking, man, this cut. Wow, free one-day shipping. Yeah. It's not even two days. The drone will deliver it to my... No, uh, that's coming. And without even thinking it, you made a purchase. And, 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 you know, maybe it's a new set of, uh, you know, kitchen tongs or something like that. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm, I'm buying some horrible sinful device, right? It's... But the point is, this is, this is where you went automatically 
to just chill, to just enjoy life for a minute, just to kind of deal with your week. And brothers and sisters, that's dangerous. That's insanity. Not because it's so harmless, but because of where you're going. And so what if, what if we work by God's grace and help when I'm feeling like that, that the first thing I went to was my favorite psalm? Or maybe I picked up my phone and I texted my good Christian friend and I said, hey, I'm really struggling. Will you pray for me? Or maybe I went back to my journal that I had written in that morning in my quiet time and I open and I look at the verse that I was supposed to focus on that day. Or maybe I go to my spouse and I say, will you just, will you just encourage me? Will you just remind me what's true? I'm just down and I'm tempted to go relax in ways that are not helpful. Will you just encourage, will you pray for me? So it's not, it's not a Lone Ranger thing. It's not just something I do privately. I, I invite the body of Christ into this to help. That's what Paul Tripp is saying. Don't just go after the alcohol. Don't just go after the heroin. Don't just go after the retail therapy. Um, you got to get to the heart. And then you craft a different, a different way. How do you do that? Through repentance. I confess that to God. I replace it with something better. I ask for help. I renew my mind in the scriptures. And I know that God is faithful to meet me in those moments to help me. Okay? Comment your notes. We really will try to finish next time. Really. Maybe. Father, thank you that you meet us where we are. And thank you that Jesus died to free us from the bondage of living for me. And to put us on the road of uh, a joy of living for you and knowing you. Lord, we all struggle. Um, we, we are all addicts at heart. Um, and regardless of the severity of our addiction, any time we turn to other things instead of you first is a hugely dangerous spiritual emergency. Lord, I pray, would you help us to see what we do more clearly? Will you help us to repent of desires and habits and thinking and behavior that are not helpful and will you help us by your grace to confess and to repent and to change and to replace those things, receiving your forgiveness, knowing that your transforming grace is at our disposal to energize our efforts and that we would replace those things with paths, well-worn paths that lead to you and ultimately lead to godliness. Lord, help us with these things. Thank you that we have a Savior who rescues us in the insanity of our addictions. Thank you that He loves us. Thank you that He doesn't leave us or forsake us. Thank you that any time we go, we will be met with grace and mercy to help. Uh, what wonderful news we have for ourselves and what amazing news we have to share with others. In Jesus' name, amen.